BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Good morning, peeps, and welcome to Woke AF Daily with me, your girl, Danielle Moody, once again recording from the Brooklyn Bunker. Folks, um, I've arrived back into New York and it feels like March of 2020 all over again. The lines for COVID-19 testing are back to being hours long and wrapped around city blocks. While folks want to say to us, epidemiologists and doctors and scientists want to say that we are in much better shape than we were in March of 2020 here in New York, the PTSD the trauma, the grief, the anxiety that we felt back then is back. And frankly, you know, it's hard to consistently, consistently be the guinea pig for COVID-19 and whatever variants come. And so, um, right now, currently there are four New York city schools that are closed. Um, hundreds of teachers have tested positive in one day. Mayor Bill de Blasio says that he will not be closing schools. I mean, schools will obviously be closing down uh, for the upcoming holiday shortly, but that he has no intention, no intention of closing schools uh, as he did back in 2020. The reality is this. We have a problem in the United States. That is obvious, right? And it isn't just Omicron. It, we have a whole host of problems that I'm going to dig into today because frankly, folks, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling a level of fatigue, frustration, and just hopelessness as we are approaching a, the holiday season that I haven't felt in quite some time. Um, you know, Omicron, what is troubling me about this new variant? You know, one, I will say this, we are in a better place. Why? Because we have vaccines and we have boosters, but I know way too many people who have been vaccinated, been boosted and have contracted COVID. 
What we are learning about Omicron is that it is more contagious and that the likelihood of us being able to dodge this variant that is three times as more contagious than Alpha, than Delta, um, and even in some instances, they're saying three to 11 times more. It depends on how you are doing your math. But what we know is that it is unlikely that we are all going to end up unscathed. So I cannot say this enough. If you have not been vaccinated, if people around you have not been vaccinated, have not been boosted, please, please, please continue to encourage them to do so. This is not a joke. Again, I have friends right now who have contracted COVID after doing all of the right things. And I also want to add to this. It is not an indictment of your character if you do contract COVID. Because what we know is that because of the actions, right, of wealthier nations and not giving a waiver to other countries, lower income countries to be able to produce their own vaccines, this is why variants keep happening. Just, you know, we want to blame the people that are unvaccinated for this surge, but the reality is, is that this came out of, or at least was first identified in South Africa, a country whose vaccination levels are low, not because of vaccine hesitancy, but because of lack of accessibility and the amount of vaccines that the higher income nations said that they were going to be offering, right, and giving to these nations, they fell short of. And why is that? Because they would rather Moderna and Pfizer and these other pharmaceutical industries make billions and billions of dollars that they receive money on the back end for. So once again, what is going to be the destruction of this country, of our planet, right? It is going to be greed. Greed is going to be what destroys us. But what concerns me the most um, about Omicron is this, and I have stated this before, and our friend Dr. Jonathan Metzl has told us that when there is more virus that is in the air, right, it is more likely that it's going to mutate. And there was a conversation I was having with a friend of mine a couple of days ago, and it was this. How long, right, did it take us to discover Delta? So let, let's, let's look at this. In June of 2021, vaccinations were readily available, and we had uh, mobilization and rollout from this administration. Okay. By July, Delta was already prominent. So by the time that we had received the vaccines, right, for Alpha, Delta had already come onto the scene. Only a couple of months had passed between the emergence of COVID-19 alpha to Delta. Now, Delta came on the scene in July. It is November, right? It was November when Omicron was first identified in South Africa and in several other countries in Europe. So we're looking now at the fact that within July... August, September, October, November, we're looking at around roughly four to five months in terms of the next variant, right? Like the time is becoming smaller and smaller between when these variants are coming. So if we're looking at Omicron and we're saying that there is more of it and it is spreading faster, the likelihood of the next variant coming is probably going to be in the next two to three months. We already see 
that with Omicron, that it is moving around the vaccinations. Now, people that are vaccinated plus boosted are less likely to have severe symptoms and be hospitalized, right? And die. But the thing is, is that this virus is getting smarter, replicating faster, and moving at the speed of light. So in order for us to get a hold of it, people need to get fucking vaccinated and boosted. But more importantly, the wealthier nations need to be providing those trip waivers so that lower income nations can begin to tackle the initial vaccination fucking rollouts. We cannot be self-serving at this moment. If there's anything that we have seen over the past two fucking years of living in this pandemic is that it is not a pandemic of isolation and silos. It is a communicable fucking disease and virus. So if we are not thinking about the collective we, then we are going to all lose, period. In other news, Joe Manchin is an asshole, right? Joe Manchin continues to show the American people, continues to show the world that he just does not give a fuck. And look, I know that shaming somebody who is shameless does not matter, but the level of rage that I have for Joe Manchin is on some next level shit. I, if I saw that man on the street, it would take everything in me not to punch him square in his face. And I'm not an advocate for violence, but I am at my wits fucking end. Because what I'm starting to realize, folks, is this, is that the end of our democracy isn't solely going to be laid on the shoulders of the Republican Party, the fascist cult, right, that wants to bring us back to 1953. No, it is going to rest on the shoulders of Democrats who are not seeing the urgency of now, right? I listened fucking yesterday to Jen Psaki, press secretary Jen Psaki's press conference, right? following the major scathing statement that the White House put out in response to Joe Manchin going on Fox, right? Going on Fox, not calling the president of the United States, not issuing a statement, but going on the very network that is responsible for spreading the big lie, for spreading fucking COVID. That's where Manchin decided to go on, to go and tell the American people that he doesn't give a fuck about them. Now, Jen Psaki, right? In her statement, in her press conference, following the quote unquote scathing statement that was put out, Jen Psaki continues to refer to Joe Manchin as a good friend of the president. Let me tell you something. If Joe Manchin is somebody that you consider your good friend, then I would hate to think what your enemies do to you. Because Joe Manchin is no friend of this president. He is no friend of this fucking country. And he is sure as fuck not a friend of democracy. This man who was elected with 290,000 votes is able to thwart the voices and the need of 81 million Americans that turned out in 2020 to vote for Joe Biden. Now, I know that everybody wanted to be up in arms about uh, host Charlemagne the God, who has a new show on Comedy Central. And if you are a New Yorker, you know him because he is one of the three hosts that hosts the show called The Breakfast Club, which is a very popular morning uh, urban radio show. Charlemagne had Vice President Kamala Harris on air and he asked her directly, 
Who is the president of the United States? Is it Joe Biden or Joe Manchin? Now, Kamala Harris, in my humble opinion, which I said recently, missed a major opportunity, missed a major media moment to be able to go after fucking Joe Manchin's jugular. You know, here's the thing. I get that Joe Biden wanted to come into the presidency and say that I am the complete opposite of Donald Trump. I'm not going to trash my political opponents. I'm not going to make targets of them. I'm going to usher in um, some grown-up sensibilities back into our body politic and back into this White House. But at the end of the day, if you are not going after enemies of democracy when you see that we are under fucking attack and that people within your own party are the ones that are bringing the sword to your legislation that are tearing it up and defecating on our democracy, then I don't know what the fuck you are doing, right? I honestly do not. Because politics is a fucking blood sport right now. 800,000 Americans are dead. And what we have learned, right, through tens of thousands of documents is just how willing and able the Trump administration was in thwarting Right? Our ability to fight back against COVID when it first came on the scene, right? In 2020. And when he learned about it in 2019. Is Donald Trump in jail? Are any of those administration officials in jail for what they did to the American people? Are they in jail for negligent homicide? Are they even being fucking indicted or questioned about what they did not do for the American people? No, they are not. And so we want to believe in this country that every time we get a new administration, that we can just turn the page without looking back and seeing exactly what it was that was done. It isn't just Republicans that are to blame for the situation that we are in right now. It is Democrats who want to think that we are continuing to function in some type of 20th century mentality. We are at war. These people are at war. We already have 800,000 people dead. By the time that we end the first quarter of this new upcoming year, a million Americans will have perished perished to COVID-19. And do you know whose responsibility it is that we reach that number? Donald fucking Trump and the Trump administration. But do you hear this current administration laying blame where where blame should be? Do you see them waging campaigns, going after their own party members and having them fall in line because it is it is inconceivable what will happen to this country if we don't pass voting rights? Right? I just do not get it. And I am at a place, right, where I I I just put up and you can go to Zora, uh, ZoraMag.com. You can go to Medium to read my latest piece in Zora Magazine, which is 2021, the year of trauma, right? And I have to tell you that when I was asked to do a reflection piece on this year, there was not one good thing in terms of not in my personal life, right? But in the grand scheme of America, there is not one good thing that we can point to. Not one. Now, my friends want to say to me, oh, Danielle, well, the vaccine rollout went really well. And I'm like, were you around for the vaccine rollout? Because initially it was a bumbling fucking mess. Now, I'm not saying that this administration didn't walk into a steaming pile of shit, but they were aware of the steaming pile of shit that they were walking into. Vaccine rollout was not great. The flip-flopping by the CDC was not great, right? But when we started off 
2021, we started off six days in with a fucking insurrection. An insurrection, an attempt to overthrow the government. And as we are coming up on that year anniversary, the people that were in charge, the architects behind that have yet to be fucking indicted. We have a department of justice that is spineless and run essentially by amoebas. We have a department of health that is trying to do their best, but still, still placating to the 25% of Americans that refuse to get vaccinated and doing so in a way that makes them feel good about the fact that they're not getting vaccinated. When are we going to actually start to police and make policy, not police, to make policy, right, with those that are doing the right thing in mind? When are we going to start to recognize that niceties and euphemisms and patting everybody on the back for doing the bare minimum doesn't fucking work? So it brings me back to Joe Manchin. So one of the reasons why Manchin is saying that he will vote no on Build Back Better. And Chuck Schumer has recently said that he is going to bring the legislation to the floor because he wants everybody to be on record, as if that fucking matters. Nonetheless, Joe Manchin says he's not going to vote for it because he doesn't believe in the child care tax credit because he thinks that parents are going to use that to go on vacation or to use it for things that they do not need. And the question that I tweeted when I heard that that was one of his responses was, why doesn't anybody ask Joe Manchin why he thinks that the American people are so undeserving? Why he thinks that low-income Americans are lazy and not deserving of their own fucking money back? I am so sick and tired of this narrative coming down from this fucking uber wealthy about how they're going to dictate certain things to low-income people and to the poor and do so through a lens, right? Through a lens of scarcity, but also through the, through the perception that these people are poor, are low-income because they just don't work hard enough. And that if we give people quote-unquote handouts, then they won't want to do for themselves. Because to me, Basically, what you are saying is that you do not believe in Americans. And I want somebody to have Joe Manchin be on the record fucking saying that as he is sitting on his $700,000 yacht and driving in his fucking thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars Maserati, right? When you look at West Virginia, they are at the bottom, the fucking bottom of every socioeconomic indicator, right? They're at the bottom of healthcare, bottom of education. But this man, they have continued to elect for four fucking decades. I didn't have the opportunity to vote for or against Joe Manchin because I don't live in fucking West Virginia. But Joe Manchin has the power in our broken fucking democracy to vote against 81 million Americans. And we think that the system is working for us. Folks, let me tell you something. Friend of the show, Kurt Bardella, also this week has a really great piece that is up at USA Today, which is his recommendations of what Democrats need to do. But basically what he has stated is that Democrats need to prepare themselves for the fact that we are losing the midterms, right? The calendar year hasn't even changed, but we can already sense what is in the air. Democrats will lose the fucking House and they will lose the goddamn Senate. And what Republicans have already said is that they will spend the next two years 
right? Making it so that Donald Trump is going to be their nominee for 2024. We will never have free and fair elections, and they will end up probably throwing Joe Biden in jail for whatever things that they want to make up about him or his families. They have told you out loud what the fuck they plan to do. And so what Kurt Bardella says in his piece is like, here's the thing. You need to operate off of the fact that we are fucked and that we have nothing left to lose. So instead of operating from this place of fear, which is so the place of comfort for Democrats, right? They are fearful of every goddamn thing. What will people think? What about the movable middle? What about independence? We need to be bipartisan. Fuck that. Guess what? Republicans don't want to fuck with you, right? They've said that to you time and time again. And as a matter of fact, if you're really not paying attention, many of them have threatened you all with fucking violence. Your colleagues in the fucking Congress have threatened you with violence. So to think that they're coming to the table for any bipartisan measure is like dreaming about Candyland. I guess you probably believe in Santa and the Tooth Fairy as well. So that's number one. Number two is this. Number two is this. No one fears Democrats. That's what Kurt said in his play, in his piece. No one fears them. They don't fear the, the commission. They don't fear the Department of Justice. They don't fear this White House because they know they have no teeth because they've proven time and time again that they are not willing to do what it takes in order to save our democracy. So when you know that, you're going to continue to run amok. You think Mark Meadows wasn't, isn't afraid of the criminal indictments that may or may not come down from the Department of Justice because Merrick Garland has showed us that he has no sense of urgency, that he doesn't think that our democracy is in peril, and that apparently, right, his colleague, Bob Mueller, who put together a fucking walking memo of 10 ways that you can fucking charge Donald Trump, well, he, I guess, put that in the bottom of the file drawer and locked it up. You have all of the evidence in front of you. You know that the administration that came before you are a group of criminals. They have fucking told you on podcasts and on Fox. And still you do nothing. I am so tired, folks, of being a part of a party that no one fears. Being a part of a party that all they want to do is have infighting about policies that the American people honestly don't understand. Do what needs to be done. Get your fucking members in line. And if you're not going to do it with carrots, right, then it's time to take out the fucking stick. I want to see campaigns waged against Joe Manchin. I don't give a fuck if we lose West Virginia because, frankly, we are losing right now. Because if this is what power looks like, if this is what winning in 2020 looks like, then you can fucking have it. You know, I'm so, like, infuriated. Because we have so much that is at stake. There is so much that is at risk. And it seems like there are only a handful of people that recognize that truth. And so when Charlemagne says to Vice President Kamala Harris, who's the president of the United States? And she has the audacity to pop off and be like, it's Joe Biden. Don't act like a Republican. Well, then Joe Biden should start acting like the fucking president. Right? Maybe do that. We are in a lot of trouble.
folks, like as this year comes to a close and as we get ready to move into 2022, we are in a world of fucking trouble. Over 800,000 Americans are dead. 25% of the population still doesn't want to get vaccinated. We have mass shootings that are back on the rise. We have over 400 voter suppression bills that are on the books. We have, you know, the rise in racism, rise in white supremacy. We have so much climate change, right? I mean, it is either fire season, tornado season, hurricane season, but every time these seasons roll around, they are once in a century. How can it be once in a century every couple of months? We are headed towards the end of days in so many fucking ways. It's biblical what is happening right now. And yet I'm waiting for Democrats to wipe the coal out their eyes and wake the fuck up. We are at a getting to a point where we have nothing to left to lose. So you better leave it all on the fucking floor right now or just leave. The reality is, is that I'm ready to fight. I've never stopped fighting. The Trump administration and what they did and Donald Trump descending down that escalator set off an alarm inside of me that has yet to go, that has yet for me to be able to hit snooze. It has been blaring for the last five years. And I want to know if anybody else can hear it. There is so much at stake. And as we tick down with just a handful of days left in this year, all I keep wondering is, my God, what does 2022 have in store? Because I'm actually terrified to find out. Folks, coming up next is a really hopeful, hopeful, conversation with um, Hope Wellensack. Um, Hope Wellensack is the executive director of uh, a Georgia initiative to create a guaranteed income for black women of $850, $850 a month that could provide black women with breathing room, provide them with the ability to understand what it's like to thrive and not just survive. And I'm really excited because Hope will offer to us a lot of statistics and a lot of reasons why um, the In Her Hand initiative uh, that they have launched, will launch, excuse me, at the beginning of 2022 matters and could possibly present itself as a model for what guaranteed income, which is different from universal basic income, what guaranteed income could look like for those communities that are always marginalized and never invested in. So I'm very excited for the upcoming conversation with Hope Wallensack. Folks, I am very excited to welcome to Woke AF for the first time, Hope Wallensack, who is the executive director of Georgia Resilience and Opportunity Fund, or GROW Fund, um, in Atlanta, the In Her Hand initiative will be focusing on providing black women with guaranteed income of around $850 a month over the next two years. And the hope here, I'm assuming, is to see how such a program that we've heard in different formats and in different ways um, by different politicians, how it can help those black women who one are the base of the democratic party, who are often heads of households and who are often also making 
50 cents on the dollar or 75 cents, depending on who's measuring, on the dollar of white men. Hope, thank you so much for making the time to join us on Woke AF. Tell me more about this extraordinary In Her Hands initiative and this program. Thank you so much for having me, Danielle. Yes, so just as you described, the In Her Hands initiative is a partnership between the Georgia Resilience and Opportunity Fund or Grow Fund and Give Directly. And we'll be providing $13 million to Black women across Georgia um, in a two-year program that pro- provides approximately $850 a month on average to participants to over 600 women across the state. Our focus uh, or our launch site is the Old Fourth Ward neighborhood of Atlanta, which is directly in the heart of the city of Atlanta. It's the neighborhood where Dr. Martin Luther King was born, where he preached at Ebenezer Baptist Church. King was an early advocate for guaranteed income, um, especially in his last book in 1968, Chaos or Community. And yet this neighborhood today, like many neighborhoods across uh, Atlanta and across Georgia and probably across the country, um, although it sits in the shadow of King's legacy of justice, is home to the largest concentration of Section 8 housing juxtaposed Mm. to million-dollar newly constructed homes. So we feel that this neighborhood, like many neighborhoods across the city, across the country, has a particular charge to pursue racial and economic justice in really bold ways that are not just a program, but also switching the paradigm on how we understand economic insecurity and poverty. So very excited about the launch of this program in early 2022 and all of the the work that's gone into it over the past couple of years to make it possible. Talk to me about the difference um, between what you in this initiative are calling a guaranteed basic income versus what we heard in the, you know, the initial, I I guess it would be uh, 2019, 2020 uh, primary, Democratic primary, where we had Andrew Yang talking about, um, you know, universal basic income. What are the distinctions between the two? Yeah, absolutely. So guaranteed income is a term that goes back to the civil rights movement, also the Black Power movement, and has long been a term to, de- to describe sort of a unconditional cash transfer program that has racial and economic justice at the heart of it. Um, guaranteed income programs tend to be targeted towards members of a specific community because we know that uh, these issues of racial and economic injustice and disparities did not emerge out of nowhere. They emerged as a result of policy, political and policy choices. And so if we want to uproot some of those issues, we have to tackle them head on and we actually have to under know the roots of where they came from and be intentional about the solutions and policies that are going to help to pursue a more racial, more racially just and equitable economy. And so guaranteed income tends to be more focused on members from a specific community and at least starting beginning with those communities and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. acute impacts. It begins with those communities, certainly can be widespread for everyone below certain income thresholds, but tends to be more focused. Whereas universal basic income, most common proposals sort of are universal. And so they would focus on everyone in a population, sort of even regardless of income. So mm-hmm. one is a little bit more targeted. The other is is universal as the title implies. Now, I have my thoughts, which I said at the top, as to why this is being focused on Black women initially. Can you explain more as to why the In Her Hands initiative, why it's focused on Black women and not just Black people in general? Yeah, absolutely. So this 
program is a result of a 2020 task force that convened in Atlanta called the Old Fourth Ward Economic Security Task Force. It involved 28 stakeholders from across the metro Atlanta area, as well as several national stakeholders. And of course, we began this work actually before the economic and health, public health impacts of COVID had really mm. taken hold. Mm-hmm. But certainly any trends that had already been in place for hundreds of years were brought to the fore and really amplified during 2020. We saw that um, we finally started recognizing and talking about it in, in regular discourse, the disproportionate women were taking on in terms of um, child care, the unpaid limb mm-hmm. for women off, also take on in terms of sort of household duties and caretaking duties. We also saw um, unemployment rates spike for, for women in particular. And of course, Black women live at the intersection of both uh gender inequality and racial inequality, and they bear the brunt of both of those. So women here in Georgia make 63 cents on the dollar to their white male counterparts. We know that those pay disparities also increase or widen as as we gain higher educational attainment. And so these disparities are really pervasive. Um, This task force asked open-ended questions about economic insecurity. And what we found when we barely scratched the surface, uh, was that although economic insecurity is pervasive, there are certain communities that are feeling it more acutely. And we would not be doing justice to tackling the problem of economic insecurity if we did not face that head on and start with some of the groups that are facing the most pervasive, the most acute impacts of economic insecurity and an economy that isn't working for everyone. And so really, this is how the task force really decided to focus on Black women. Black women are one of the groups most likely to live in poverty in Georgia. They're Mm -hmm. also one of the groups Mm -hmm. most likely to be stuck in poverty in Georgia. And we know Black women serve this role as oftentimes head of households, but also like the backbone of our community in so many ways. And so we don't view this program as something that is a handout, we view this as something people already deserve. Um, and so excited to to help to bring the conversation into this is what people already deserve and more. And how do we actually direct more of that towards towards these communities? Let's dig into the already deserve piece, because, you know, one of the things that troubles me the most, um, particularly when we're talking about, let's just look on the macro level at federal programs that we're looking, right, in this current administration, we just learned uh, yesterday, Build Back Better is dead in the water, right, because of one obstructionist Democrat who does not care about the needs of a majority of Americans. And the idea here to me is that we all pay taxes, We pay a lot of taxes, right? Particularly middle income and low income people pay more than their fair share. And I look at it and I say on Woke AF all the time that these social safety net programs are are the government reinvesting our money back in us, right? And yet when you hear these conversations happen on Capitol Hill, it is always, you know, clouded in this idea that Americans are lazy, that like what we shouldn't be giving them money. Oh my God, cut off the the COVID relief package. You know, cut off the uh, unemployment um, credits that we were giving back to people because if we provide right? If we provide people with their own tax dollars back so that they can live their day-to-day lives without worrying about their basic needs, then they're not going to work. And so how do you all push back against that narrative and kind of help to reframe it, you know, for people outside of, oh, we're just giving these lazy people money to sit on their couch as opposed to this is what they're owed? 
Right, right. Right. This is a system that we've already paid into. And so now mm-hmm. we're just getting back a little bit of what we've already paid into. Yeah, at the core of this, at the core of this initiative is changing, changing the narrative on what people broadly deserve. And I think we start by doing that by changing the narrative on what black women deserve. I think for too long we have allowed the trope of in the 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 myth of the welfare queen yep. influence policy that influences the material conditions of of people across generations, across communities, and it is no longer acceptable. We need to face it head on and say, this is everyone deserves a decent, dignified life. Why has we why have we de, de, why have we decided policies that actually undercut people's ability to do that? The truth is the the federal government, state governments play a huge role in determining who receives resources from you know, those at the top to those at the bottom. And for some groups of people, we put in these restrictions. For some, for some types of resource allocation, people have to jump through hoops. And that is inherently linked to our conceptions of who deserves what in this economy. And so at some point, I think we sort of, we, we change the narrative by building a new one. And that's what this program is. We are building something new. We are recognizing we're not waiting for someone else to recognize our deservedness. We're saying we have it already. And so um, certainly everyone deserves a decent and dignified life. And so when we can, when we support black women who have often been the punching bag on these policies, Mm -hmm. that we can begin to uproot, uproot this system that is actually failing broadly many different groups of women, but many different groups of people, I'm sorry, but on the back of really Black women and by using them as the punching bag here. So, I mean, I think it goes without saying, um, people who are cash or experiencing cash shortfalls, low income poor, whatever the term is, are incredibly resilient and resourceful. I think they could actually probably teach uh, some folks who have a lot more more funds on like the best ways to, to make $1 turn into two and to stretch a dollar. But we don't view it that way. We actually view it the opposite. I, I view it that actually our communities are incredible places of wealth and knowledge on how to uh, make an economy that is works for everyone, not just on an individual level, but on an, a community level, and to think about sort of how to, to make resources go further. But we don't tap into that knowledge. In fact, we do the opposite. We view, we view it as a place absent of knowledge, a deficit-based mindset versus an asset-based mindset. So hopefully this program can help to uproot some of those, some of those tropes. And certainly our evaluation aspect of this program will be looking into some of the questions you, you just asked. So let's get into some of the nitty gritties of the program, which, you know, again, I I think it's extraordinary, right? Because I think, you know, I have been thinking it, particularly since the pandemic, where millions of people lost their jobs. You know, when I was quarantining with my family uh, in 2020 at the height, you know, of of the pandemic, I saw lines around food pantries that I didn't even know existed in, in the community that I grew up in. Um, and there were lines that we saw on national news, just, I mean, miles long with people just needing to get a box of food so that they could get through the next couple of weeks. And I thought to myself, how often do we say that America is the wealthiest nation? America is this beacon. And yet a majority of Americans, if a $400 bill came due, wouldn't be able to pay it. And that has stayed consistent uh, you know, over the years. And so with this program, how do people opt in? 
right? And then what are what are some of I guess uh, the recordings or the reflections that you all um, will be get will be receiving from the persi- uh, participants in in the program? Terrific. So we'll be launching in the old Fourth Ward neighborhood of Atlanta, and then we'll be expanding out to a couple additional geographies across the state. So people will will be doing enrollment and reaching out to folks within these selected neighborhoods to focus. To, to let them know that they may be eligible for the program and encourage them to apply. And so um, our out, let me, let me think. So we hope that this program certainly, it's one of the largest guaranteed income programs in the country. It's also the largest program in the country focused on black women. It's the largest guaranteed income program in the South. And yet we know we would love to actually see this work grow because we know it's a bit of a drop in the bucket compared to mm-hmm. the of the problem. And so we hope that this, it's going to be selected areas across the state. We're really excited okay. about the size of it, but we also hope that, you know, it can grow even further and that this program has actually an influence on state or federal policy towards similar type solutions. Um, and we have some ideas on what sort of a guaranteed income could look like at scale. Um, but that is essentially how the how the program will be rolled out. And it's so it's a short term initiative in the hopes of generating insights and learnings. And that would compel towards sort of old, old policy change towards these types of solutions. Um, what does eligibility look like? Do you have to be at, you know, at or below poverty level? Do you have to have, depend you know, a certain amount of dependence? Yeah, this is one of the the first programs you do, you do not need dependents. So okay. you can be uh, a parent or, or not a parent and participate in this program. You um, it's focused on black women and focused on black women in specific geographies. And so, and then there is an income threshold for participation in the program, which will let people know for the specific geographies. Okay. You know, it's just, I, I really love this idea and I'm excited to see how it changes, you know, how, how it changes the, the communities that you're going to be tapping in. Just tell us, you know, uh, one of my last questions is, you know, tell us about what your hopes are. What, what, what do you hope to see, um, from out of the, out of this two years and, you know, how do you think that it will change uh, the lives of the participants? Yeah, our hope for these two years is that we're able to increase the economic security and financial stability of individuals um, who participate in the program. We know that although cash shortfalls and financial insecurity, we use it that term as if it's really abstract from people's everyday lives, but it affects the material conditions of people's lives, the duration of their life and the uh, the quality of one's life. So we hope that this in some small way, it is certainly not enough and people deserve more, but in some small way, gives people back a little bit of time, a little bit of autonomy, mm. a little bit of freedom to make choices, a little bit of breathing room finally for them to mm-hmm. just have a second to take, to take a step back and take care of themselves and their loved ones. Um, individuals experience uh, cash shortfalls, but those ripple effects are felt across generations. Um, Mm -hmm. It is felt across communities. It is felt across household units. And so we hope that there are some ripple effects even across communities um, 
with this type of program. And so our goal is, yes, to improve the sort of financial security of folks in the short run. And we we think that will have sort of impacts on their financial well-being in the long term, their mental health and well in physical health in the long term, as well as a number of other factors. But really, if I had to boil it down, giving folks just that breathing room. And then I think a second objective for the program is to influence influence policy. Something about we, what we've been doing isn't working. As you said, the majority yeah. of Americans can afford a $400 emergency. We can keep trying the same things and investing in the same things over and over, or we can finally take a step back and say, why don't we listen to people in communities about what their needs are and then do something about it? Let's place the power in the hands of the people closest to the problem to develop solutions on solving it and actually listen to them when they're telling us what the what the root of the problem is. We heard from community members, cash would be a game changer. It is very difficult to budget, plan for your life when month after month you're 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 experiencing cash shortfalls. And so we hope that this program has some short-term implications for program participants, but also begins to shift the paradigm on how we even develop policies in the first place and whose voices are centered in that in that decision-making process. You know, it's always the people who are so distant from the actual problem that are the ones that are making policy. And one of the things that you had said, you know, earlier is low-income communities are so much more resilient because they have always had to do more with less. And, you know, and this idea that a lot of politicians, not just, you know, Republicans, but Democrats alike, really look at low-income communities as a de- through a deficit lens, as opposed to saying, well, like, we are in a buck, supposedly an abundant nation, right? And so how is it that we are unable to help the least among us? And why is that? And it is because I believe that they don't think that these people are deserving. We have set up this idea around, you know, if you are wealthy, right? Then, then we should be taking advice from you. You should be providing, you know, books on success and how to achieve. And I'm just like, how? When you look at most of those people, the super wealthy, the 1%, they received money from family, right? To start their businesses, to do these things. And it's like, you should be asking questions of those that have been able to make the most out of the least about how you thrive, right? And I think that moving th- this fund to me, seems like an opportunity to move people from a place of survival into actually thriving. Like, what does it mean, you know, to be able to have breathing room, whether you're putting that money back into the economy or you're saving it, or you find like, I have a little bit to invest in something, right? And and grow it from there. And I think that that's really important. Um, Holly, tell us, if folks want to find out more information, if they want to get involved, um, how how they can find you all? Absolutely. So um, pe- folks can visit thegrowfund.org to learn more about our work and also support our work. Yeah, I just, you know, I really want to commend you. I, I hope that we can circle back uh, in a couple of months to hear how things are going, how many participants that you have, um, and, and what are some of the testimonies coming out um, from the women that you're helping? Because I think that that's going to be really important too. I want to definitely hear um, hear their voices about what it means to be able to know that you have this guaranteed income coming in and how you're better able to plan. 
um, your life moving forward rather than dealing paycheck to paycheck. So Holly, thank you so much for making the time to join us on Woke AF. And I hope to have you back to hear how well things are going. Um, and for those people that are interested in getting in contact, folks, head to grow.org. Thank you so much. Would love to be back. That is it for me today, friends, on Woke AF. As always, power to the people and to all the people power. Get woke and stay woke as fuck. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. When the time comes to plan your next big getaway, know we got a destination idea for you. Orlando. Just think about it. The thrills at their 15 world-class theme parks, followed by awesome outdoor adventures, amazing food festivals, and top-notch dining spots. Orlando has all that and much more than you'd expect. In Orlando, anything is possible if you can imagine it. Plan your escape today and save at visitorlando.com. That's visitorlando.com for everything you need for an amazing getaway.